You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. When white men stand up and use their voice for change, it is exponentially more powerful. And we've got to accept that role because our silence, white silence, is actually an incredible reinforcement of the status quo. As you choose to be an agent of change and a part of the collective building of equity for everyone that is involved, it's so important to remember that everything that you're doing is a part of us all being a part of a community. No one is separate from this, including the person that's doing the work. Because you know what? When we help others, we all win. Let's talk about this and so much more today on Pause on a Play, where we challenge you to reconsider your normal and consider realities that you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, along with my co-host India Jackson, ready to get the dialogue going. So today we have a guest and I have been super excited to have this, this conversation because it is really important to be aware of the role that you can actively play or choose to opt out of when it comes to shifting our reality for equity. And Andrew Horning is a white man who is very vocal about how white men need to be agents of change. And so being able to listen to the way that he approaches this, the way that he advocates for everyone to be a part of this entire operation that we're all contributing to and being able to just simply talk about what it is to honor and to build your own emotional resilience when discomfort likes to show up and remembering that it's important to reconnect with what's essential. This and so much more is what made this conversation absolutely amazing. So I can't wait for you to listen. Let's get into it. Hey, hey, Andy. Hey, good morning. How are you? I am well. I am navigating a little bit of back pain, and I am definitely taking note that you sound ultra congested today. (laughs) Yep. The universe was like, I'm going to jack up your back, and then I'm going to jack up your sinuses. Good luck this morning. (laughs) I'm like, oh, no. But that's okay. Yeah, I feel strange asking that how are you question. (laughs) I know, but you know what? Sometimes I'm like, there needs to sometimes be um, like a vocalization of like, yes, this is how I feel, but that isn't how I'll feel forever. So it's just a moment in time and I'm okay with that. Same, same. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today because to put it succinctly, there is a lot of power in having a conversation that includes a white man about making change because there's not enough of that. Agreed. And can we find more white men willing to have that conversation? Like, where are they? (laughs) Hello, just so you know, like y'all can come talk like you're welcome to come have this conversation. (laughs) So I will let you get us started by introducing our guest for today, Andrew Horning. So today we are being joined by Andrew Horning. And Andrew is a coach and a teacher at the Hoffman Institute, an organization dedicated to transformative education, spiritual growth, and dimensional leadership for those seeking clarity in their personal and professional lives. As the creator and host of the podcast, Elephant Talk, 
Andrew encourages couples to have courageous conversations for the sake of a deeper connection. And you know, we're all about deeper connection here. So already on board with that podcast. (laughs) Right. He's the co-host of the Hoffman podcast, a keynote speaker, and a volunteer and former board chair for Intercambio Cambio. (laughs) He's going to tell me the correct pronunciation of that again. Uniting Communities. And Andrew earned his master's degree in clinical social work from the University of Michigan and is a former licensed private practice psychotherapist. He lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife of nearly two decades and their two children. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for, well, I have to start by acknowledging that this wasn't even a conversation that we reached out to you for. You reached out to us. And for that, I feel like it's necessary to say thank you because it's not always an easy conversation to talk about things that need to be changed and some of the roles that we play consciously or unconsciously um, in that change that needs to happen. And being willing to have that dialogue, I, I think, you know, it is worthwhile to acknowledge that that does take courage to say, hey, I'm willing to be a part of this. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. So I'd like you for a quick second to just tell the listeners a little bit of something about you, because I think that our bios are always great, but you're a human. So tell them a quick (laughs) something that makes you who you are, or if you'd like to share a piece of your backstory. Um, Golly, you know, I... uh... I love getting outside, being in nature, connecting with um, the world around us. There's something about taking a breath of fresh air outside that really feeds my soul. But I think the other thing I would just share is that I, I love talking about engaging in uh, change and the personal growth that leads to change. That's kind of what my professional life has been about. It's what I geek out about with friends. Like, how do we help people change? How do we help people grow? What makes people step up to the life that is their birthright? And what prevents people from doing that too? Like, why do people struggle? And what are the things that cause distress? So I'm I'm uh, glad to be here, you guys. Thank you. Absolutely. And so being that you mentioned one of the most pivotal pieces, I think, of this conversation and of, you know, the work that we do at Pause on the Play, I think it makes perfect sense to start off with the question of what does being an agent of change mean to you as the human that you are? You mentioned change. And so what does it mean to be an agent of change? I think um, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is challenging the status quo. I think on the opposite end of change is status quo. And that is this domain where things stay the same, that change is only cursory or superficial. And uh, status quo keeps the powers that be still in charge, uh, with with the power politically, financially, emotionally, and um, and change doesn't happen on a systemic level, on an individual level. So it has to be willing to challenge the status quo, and being willing to navigate the adventure that change is. It's it's not always easy. So um, I think I think part of where I come from in this work of um, confronting white privilege and white supremacy in our society is is maybe from a unique place because of my background as a therapist and and work at the Hoffman Institute. I strongly believe that it begins with our relationship with ourselves emotionally. If I'm scared, if I'm uncomfortable with discomfort, if I can't navigate the struggles that change requires, I'm going to reject it and rationalize the status quo and find all kinds of ways to not engage in the hard work of being an ally, not engage in the hard work of 
creating and fighting against the status quo that benefits so many of the people that look like me, but ends up hurting so many other people. Mm. That comfortability with being uncomfortable is something that I find is a through line through so many conversations that we've had here. And I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, what are some of the things that shows up in someone's resilience with discomfort? Yeah, actually, I, I think for me, um, that is that is the question right there. How can we be resilient in the face of discomfort? Um, and and I'll I'll just say that there, you know, it, watching people navigate change for twenty years. You, you ask yourself the question, why do some people do it better than others? And what I've come to is really kind of two key things. One is courage. It takes courage, emotional courage to step towards the struggle, to step towards discomfort, to step towards things, topics, feelings, struggles that aren't easy. Uh, you, you almost have to be willing to choose discomfort uh, over what's known and what's familiar. So that's the first thing is is really embracing the courage required to be an agent of change. And the second thing is compassion, self-compassion, because when we're critical and judgmental of ourselves, growth comes to a halt. It, it just doesn't thrive in an environment where people are judgmental, critical, harsh, perfectionistic towards themselves. We've got to be willing to fail, to get it wrong, to not say it right, to not do it right, to make a mistake. And, and to do so, we have to have compassion for ourselves in that struggle. And so courage and compassion are really critical uh, emotions, but also like ways of being, ways of living to, to step towards the work, the life that's required to be an agent of change. So one of the things that I find interesting is everything that you are mentioning is kind of what it means to walk toward the change knowing that that road may not be easy, but it's still necessary. And a lot of people are not fully willing to do that. Some of them are not even partially willing to do that. And the group that I find that seems to be the least willing, unfortunately, most often uh, to, to embark in this is white men. I agree. What do you what do you think <laughs> kind of creates this environment that yeah. white men really are necessary for a lot of the change that has to happen and yet they're the most unwilling to be a part of the process. I am so glad you pointed that out because I that that hit me about 5 years ago, which is why I wrote this book called Grappling because you know, I started to realize that the the people who have the power. I mean, I've known this forever. It's not, it's not rocket science to look out and see white men uh, as a majority of our 99.9% .9 of our presidents, our CEOs, our, um, uh, our leaders, they're, they're white males. And so in that power position, we're not invested in change because that unfortunately, some people interpret that as that means we have to give up our power. I mean, but that's that zero sum game that a lot of white right. men hold, which is that if I give up some of my power, if I engage in power sharing, decision making, anything beyond what the status quo is, then I lose and you win. And in that, in that world, well, of course, if we see it that way, we're going to hold on. And I think that's part of what 
you know, the hoarding, the white hoarding of wealth and power is is about is feeling threatened by the change that's happening in the world. But what happened for me is that I think when you see the Me Too movement uh, call out these dinosaurs of power, these white men who've been engaging in these practices that they thought were okay, clearly on some level. And now it's like those days are gone. And I think just more and more, we can fight the change that's happening around us. It's like putting our finger in the dike of change. It's like it, the rising waters are happening and we can turn towards them and accept the reality that a change is a coming, or we can cover our ears and eyes and pretend that it's not happening and that island is getting smaller. So let's step towards it and grow and change and be a part of it rather than being pushed or victimized or feeling powerless against it. I mean, I'd rather say, okay, I see this is happening. What can I do? Let me be an, uh, 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 let me have agency in this journey rather than feeling like, oh, well, fuck it, man. I guess, I guess black people are taking it from me. I guess women are doing their thing. And now I'm a victim in this progress. And that gets I'm my- I'm so glad you I, said that. I get fired up. <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm like, yeah, thank you for all of that. Because <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not normally said that way. And I think too often it is this like, uh, oh, I'm going to allow myself to be the victim because it makes me feel like it's not my fault and I played no part in it. And this mm. is happening to me and it's not my fault. And I think that there is that, necessity to acknowledge, hey, this is what's happened, but this can move forward in a way that's more beneficial to everybody. And it's not about me losing. That's, that's not the point. The point is not, I want to take away from you because I don't want you to have. It's because why do you need to have more? Well, and yeah. what I also hear coming up is one of the things that you discuss in your book, Grappling, is really making that decision, being proactive and saying, I am going to decide to be this agent of change instead of a victim of progress. Yeah. And you know, as, as you say that, one of the things that comes to my mind is that we over-identify with these roles we play as a white person and as a male. And I think more than any other group of people, like we're we're entrenched in whiteness and and maleness, and we don't even really know it. I mean, you ask people about what is it, how has whiteness informed your sense of self, your experience in the world? And people have very little understanding of, of that. And so I think to undo, if you tell me, it's this weird thing that whiteness has informed our identity, but we have no idea how it's informed our identity. So to strip away whiteness, well, who am I? And that can be really scary for people. And I also think this is stepping towards the racism that has been entrenched in our country is scary shit for white people. I mean, let's be honest, that's some scary stuff. There is shame associated with being a white person who um, who has the legacy of uh, capturing black people, bringing them to this country, enslaving them, and then post civil rights saying everything's fine. It's a, it's fine. That that was then. This is now. It's it's all fine. I think we're avoiding the shame that is in every white person, and that's part of the reason we can't confront the issues like we need to because we're afraid of the shame that that is there waiting for us if we do. So with everything you said, I think that there is that shame and there is this legacy that was handed down that comes hand in hand with the, the, the privileges and the uh, generational benefits that are there. And at the same time, 
things are changing and need to continue to change. So what is it that you think makes this moment in time, you know, really a great opportunity for white men to do something differently other than just the fact that it's better to start now than never? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know, this, I don't know how you guys are going to feel about this, but here's what I will say is that if we, if we don't have, and maybe this is pandering on some level, but if we don't have an enlightened self-interest, for me, this work has been, has brought more energy, has made me feel more confident um, to have conversations, to be an ally, um, much more so. uh, And so I think we have to consider that we can gain from this work. It's not just um, something that is self-sacrificial. There's actually so many gains that we can have as we step towards this work. And for me, that's part of the message I would say is um, stripping away whiteness uh, and all the ways that we have gained from the white supremacist culture that is entrenched in our culture it is actually a freeing empowering journey. So why wouldn't you want to step towards that? It can be actually enlivening, exciting, and give you a deeper sense of confidence to show up in the world around you, create more connection to the people and the world you live in. What do you guys think of that? I think that that (laughs) is such a powerful (laughs) way to look at it. Right. And yet I also wouldn't be honoring myself to say that there are so many people that I've witnessed and encountered in life that have been programmed to believe the opposite of that, that they have so much to lose. Mm -hmm. And it makes me really question, you know, where does this programming come from? And is this is what white people were designed to believe so that they don't change history? They don't create change for the future. I have to I have to agree with that. I think for me, I think that people often look at things as if they either benefit me or they either benefit you. They're very uh, rarely do you find that there's this acknowledgement of kind of where that middle ground is. I mean, if you think about a, a partnership dynamic, whether it's business or it's um, an intimate relationship or even a family, it's like, well, what do I get out of this? What do you get out of this? As if there's this clear delineation of it has to be one or the other. And I think there is a lot of programming of if you win, I lose. If yes. I win, I can convince everybody that it's all fine, but the fact of the matter is I'm okay and that's really all I'm concerned about. And so there is this place of even when I talk about imperfect allyship, reminding people that there is absolutely something to gain when you are connecting with people, when you are reconsidering your normal and hearing their stories and learning about them and being able to witness them beyond what you've been told about them or what you've been programmed to believe is the truth about them. And I think it's there. It's whether or not people are willing to go past the shame that you've mentioned, Andrew, and that they're willing to go past any of that part of them that is nervous because, oh, there's this unknown and I don't know what's on the other side if I do this. What if this is just a trick and you're just getting me to do this because in some people's heads, they're more worried about it being about revenge than almost a, a, a sense of redemption for all of us. And so there's this true like resistance because they're just like, this isn't for me, this is for you. And they miss the whole mark that this is for everybody. We all suffer like this, believe it or not. Thank you, Erica. That's exactly... Um in the direction that I was heading in my mind is that there's this rhetoric that it's 
either you or someone else and everything is individualized in a way that we forget the collective whole. And a lot of the conversation around doing things for the collective whole is leaving behind that you are a part of the collective whole. (laughs) When everyone wins, you win too. You are a part of the world that we live in. That. (laughs) I, you know, I think, I don't know where this idea of revenge got um, spread because I think if you, nothing is further from the truth, especially if you consider that St. Louis couple who is outside their home with their uh, machine guns during a George Floyd protest mm-hmm. and and the protesters are going by peacefully chanting expressing their opinion and the the this couple is guarding their home with these machine guns thinking that they want to attack and that's not about revenge and yet as white people we we get that all we get all turned up in all the wrong ways around that but i do love this idea of owning our humanity that that this is about you know seeing that all of us are flawed on some level and all of us have a beautiful powerful spirit inside of us so to step towards it is just an acknowledgement of that fact but i will say for for white men part of what courage and compassion get you is humility and i think that that quality is so important in this work to have humility to be humble to be a learner uh to listen to not have the answers to not mansplain or whitesplain to follow rather than lead and humility is so important to be able to do that and yet so so challenging sometimes for these white dudes out there. Very challenging. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything that you just laid out and what you said um, is some of the biggest roadblocks that I see white men have in doing this work. Um, there's this rhetoric that they have to be the authority. They have to be the leader. They have to be in charge. And I think that it can make it very challenging to be able to clearly see how even that rhetoric does not always serve them. Mm. You know, um, as in the work I do around emotions, one of the things people really struggle with is holding two opposite emotions at the same time. So to be scared and excited, sad and and happy, um, and Carl Jung says our most valued spiritual tool we have is the paradox and this idea of holding two opposites at the same time. And so I think this work requires that we hold the paradox of it all that this is scary. It's scary for white people to step towards this work, for white men to step towards this work. And it's incredibly exciting and and full of so much opportunity to learn and grow. Uh, but what's also true is to hold the paradox intellectually, I think, I just don't, I wish white men were more curious uh, in the idea engagement and so that we can hold that, you know, there are a lot of factors, race and racism is complicated and it's challenging and it's not always easy. And we can often bail by being overly simplistic with our interactions with the world around us. And so part of the call is to hold these challenging emotions and hold contrary challenging emotions and hold thoughts that don't always make sense engage in the material, engage in the world around you with more nuance rather than trying to be overly simplistic and then therefore bailing from conversations and ideas and actions 
that are full of paradox. Well, and when there is that willingness to step into these conversations and these actions and these opportunities to shift that status quo and to shift the way that things have been done, not because it's the best, but simply because it's just the way it's always been done. You know, what type of collective impact do you think can happen when white men, as more of a whole, do choose to actively become agents of change? What's possible? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> I, I have um, an uh, the executive director of Intercambio that I was on the board of shares this anecdote where he was as a white man in a room with all uh, black and brown people discussing an issue years ago. And they were trying to create change. And then at one point, they turned to him. He, he, he will never forget this. At one point, and I put this in the book, at one point, they turned to him and everyone stares at him. And he said he got flushed. And they said, look, you've got to go out and speak. You're the white guy here. They're not going to listen to us. You're the one who needs to use your voice. And it was in that moment that he said he got the power of his role. And just recently, I was contacted to come speak to a group of people. And I was talking with the woman. I said, um, wouldn't it be better to have um, a black or brown person come? And, and she said, no, no, these are white people. They need you. They need you because they'll listen to you. I've spoken with them. We've had other facilitators. But in this moment, right now, they need you. And uh, when white men stand up and use their voice for change, it is exponentially more powerful. And we've got to accept that role because our silence, white silence, is actually an, uh, an incredible reinforcement of the status quo. There's this um, saying that silence is violence, and that feels so relevant in what you just said. Agreed. Agreed. The interesting thing about what you said is, um, you know, like for, you know, me being someone that does do diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and I do work with organizations, and I also am never able to ever truly ignore the fact that there is a difference in what is picked up when they listen to me. And there's a difference in, you know, if someone that looks like you is the one delivering them the message, there is sometimes a different level of trust, a different level of receptiveness. And that is not enough to keep me from doing what I do. But it would, you know, I'd be full out lying to not acknowledge that there are a lot of barriers to whose message can be received based on how you look, based on the people that you're talking to, based on the way that you deliver your message. There's a lot of tone policing that's baked into it. And that a lot of the things that need to change do need to come from those that, you know, if we use a zero-sum game, would benefit the least from the change. Because you are the ones that are acknowledging, hey, this is not about what I'm going to lose. This is about what we all gain. And there's a lot of power in you acknowledging that whether we like it or not, that there is a lot of necessary power that needs to be utilized for someone that looks like you to be the person delivering the message. Yeah. And it, it makes me think about how we've talked about in the past and I think is so relevant now that it's important for others that don't look like us to amplify the messages that are being put out, especially from people in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, in the activism space, because it's almost like a stamp of approval of the message. It's the message on its own, when it's not being shared by white people, many times will not land on the people that need to hear it. That because I, every, I think that it's important for people to own their own narratives, but we also have to be honest about the best ways possible to amplify those narratives. And it has to come through um, 
you know, additional amplification from platforms and voices of, of white people in order to make make more people listen. And at some point we can look at that and maybe, you know, regroup, but we also have to be honest about what it is. Yeah, it's funny. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> as we look back at, you know, the last few years, Erica, you've been saying the same things over and over and over and over again. And it's when people like you, Andrew, share that content that it suddenly takes off. Yeah, I was thinking about um, how grateful I was for Robin D'Angelo's work because I think, you know, understanding how uh, power holds on to power and the definition of what it means to be racist has changed to allow power to stay in place. And so the number of white people who uh, put stay on the sidelines by saying, I'm not racist, um, and those words in and of themselves allow the power structure and racism to stay in place. Racism exists out there in the bad people. I'm a good person. Therefore, I'm not racist. Therefore, I don't really need to do anything is a, is an equation that leaves the status quo of racism firmly in place. Yeah. Um, as I think back on what you shared a few moments ago about that opportunity that presented itself of people coming and saying, we need you to say this because they won't listen to us. What would you say to someone who is being presented with that and is having the rhetoric in their head that they're being weaponized and that they won't be used in this way and that they're choosing not to speak up, that this is not their responsibility? So what would I say to someone who sees this as not their responsibility? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a good white person. I'm not uh, racist, but it's not my responsibility to speak up and be the voice for these other people over here who are not white. Yeah, so I think prior, you're right, you wouldn't want to speak up if you don't understand what you're speaking up about. That would be inauthentic. So, so learn, like engage in understanding what it means to be racist. And you might see yourself in that work. And if you can own um, your own humanity, this is not about being a perfect person. This is about seeing ways in which we've been conditioned. And if you want authenticity as a goal for yourself, then consider all the ways you've been conditioned around whiteness that is, in fact, inauthentic. And um, from that place, get uncomfortable, do, do the internal work uh, and get some clarity around how you've been, I think part of the hardest part for white men is to consider that they've been, we're, we live in this idea of a meritocracy, like my hard work, I did it. Yeah, man, I worked hard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I did that. I did that. I, I created that. All and by myself. Sometimes. All by myself. All by myself. <laughs> it was all me. And it's like, no, man, come on. Your whiteness and your maleness has given you a huge advantage in so many subtle and overt ways. And own that. Own that. And then turn outward. After going inward, then turn outward and, and look around and see where you want to speak up, how you want to speak up. But it is first an internal journey. So the other piece, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that I'm hearing is that this is also about going on your own journey and at some point being able to outwardly, you know, address for yourself and those around you and those that you can influence your part in this and the things that you want to do differently, how you can influence a different outcome for everybody involved. And that that is different 
than to language it for those that are impacted, i.e., let me tell you what a black person is going through. Yeah, I think uh, that's too often the, the route we go, which is sort of trying to... I read this article recently about this classroom at a college where it was the white men who were answering questions and identifying the experiences of women and black and brown people. And at some point, somebody wrote a letter to the editor that said, enough, enough of the white men telling us about our experience. That's not what this is about. Mm. Right. I just I I wanted to differentiate that because I think sometimes there can be this confusion that you utilizing your platform and your voice for change and, you know, really languaging your experiences and the things that you want to do differently. And the fact that that in itself is a very different job that you're taking on, so to speak, than to speak for a group of people that can speak for themselves and simply just need (laughs) the opportunity to have a platform to do so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got called out by a couple of people who were saying, why are we talking about whiteness? Like we need to be listening and, and, and be with black and brown people supporting them. And I fully agreed. And white people, there's a a value to caucusing amongst white people and doing reflection groups together to learn. We are so uneducated about whiteness. We have so far to come that actually engaging in conversations with one another about this thing that has been so unconscious will actually help us then turn outward to be allies. I'm going to say that, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but I do think that there is a place to where there does need to be some conversation had together so that you don't uh, traumatize black and brown people in conversation with you. But there also has to be that point to where it is understood that this is a prerequisite. This is not the work. What we're doing is being able to figure out how to have this conversation better so that when we have this with those that don't look, live, or love the way that we do, that we are not essentially talking out of our ass, if I'm being <laughs> frank about <laughs> it. And so I, 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 you know, because there is that space of like, you know, for some white people, they'll, they will feel as though I'm just going to stay insulated. And that's not helpful. But there does need to be that space of I don't want to be so ill-equipped that I'm actually creating harm. You want to do it in a way that you have come to terms with some things, but yet you understand that this is not really the heart of it, doing it all alone without those that are impacted by the harm that's being received. Yeah, I love that. It really is a both and. If I go out into the world with unexamined uh, understanding of of me and my whiteness, I can I can do harm. But if also on the other end, I only make it about uh, talking with people who look like me about what it means to be white, it's all introspection, and that's not helpful at all. Ooh, there's so much power in being able to carry these conversations with diverse groups of people. And you can literally pick one little question and pull out so many different perspectives about what could seemingly be a simple question based on people's backgrounds, their biases, where they grew up, the things that they've learned along their journeys. It's the reconsidering of your normal, understanding that I can have a normal, you, India, can have a normal, Andrew, you have a normal, and all of these things exist at the same time, and none of them are any less valid, and yet we are very familiar with our own and very much less so with others. And so how can we get out of only taking ours as the benchmark and understanding that there's so much more that does need to be reconsidered? and included in the context and the perceptions that we choose to deploy. Yeah, and that that requires stamina. 
you know, that's not an easy journey. Identity, when identity is wrapped up in this, to question it and to have it be challenged is uncomfortable. And and you talked about the resiliency necessary. And, and white men in particular need to build their racial stamina to have these kinds of conversations engage in that kind of work. I agree. I love what you just said. And I thank you for sharing that perspective because I know that um, part of your book is talking about going from, you know, fragile to agile. And it's something that I think from the outside looking in with the a mask of masculinity, so to speak, many people don't even realize is there. And that this is a whole new level of or type of vulnerability and type of stamina and resilience required. Yeah, I use that word fragility really uh, on purpose because it it ends up, um, you know, our defensiveness, our kind of rationalizing, all these things that look like power are actually really fragile and really uh, point to fear and discomfort and an inability to navigate those waters. So let's step towards it and go for the agility necessary to engage in this work. And so with that being said, as we begin to kind of wind down here a little bit, because I I could talk for hours (laughs) because this is a great conversation and I think it's a necessary conversation. Um, If you had one action that you would like the listeners to take uh, after listening here uh, in order to create change, what would that one action be, Andrew? You know, I think part of it is where, where are you on the continuum of what we just talked about? And so if you're new to the work, it would be um, move towards uncomfortable subjects, uh, read articles, look at news uh, headlines, um, in, stimulate yourself with the racism that is entrenched in the world around us and notice and learn and build the tolerance for the discomfort inside of you um, so that you can increase the muscle. Our our muscles are atrophied or non-existent. So uh, go towards the world around you so that you can check out and support the muscle building inside of you. Um, and then if you're, if you're already there in that and that muscle is built, then consider like what's one action you can do? What's something that you can speak out about to put on uh, your platform and speak out as a white person to use your voice? And, and what other actions and keep it, you know, don't try and save the world in one day. Then the white saviors, we don't need white saviors. We need white people who are engaged in the work, willing to stand up and speak out and create allies and be an ally with those around us one step at a time. I'll take that. (laughs) I think that's very beneficial and extremely helpful. And I think you know, I'm glad that you broke it down that way because it does, does give people an opportunity to kind of have an action regardless of where they are in the journey. So I appreciate that. And so that everyone can also check you out and learn more about your book, Grappling. Tell everyone where they can find you, Andrew. Sure. AndrewHorning.co. We also talked about the Hoffman Institute, uh, HoffmanInstitute.org for the Hoffman Process. But you guys, I'm just grateful for this conversation and appreciate the opportunity to learn and, well, just good conversation, courageous conversation is always enlivening for me. So you guys must love this work of bringing people on to have good, heartfelt, courageous conversation. That's why we're here every week. <laughs> Absolutely our thing. So for being a part of this vulnerable and very necessary and impactful conversation, we appreciate you being here, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you.
I am so grateful that Andrew was willing to come and have this conversation with Indy and I because some white men would not be willing to be that vulnerable, to be that transparent, and to really talk about what needs to happen and why it needs to be a collective effort. You know, the fact that he dug into the humanity of it, that, you know, there's this resilience that's necessary, but that again, there's self and self is not extracted from the collective. I think that being able to really hone in on that is so important when things get scary and it gets hard because it is essential to remember that we are doing this together, that what is essential is reconnecting to those of us that contribute to a more beneficial future for everyone that is coming after us, but also honoring those that are here right now and that they are valid and they deserve all of the opportunities that they have been denied. And so tomorrow we're beginning a month-long conversation in the community about what is essential and reconnecting with that. And this conversation led so beautifully into that. So we would love to have you being a part of that conversation with us and all of the amazing members. You can come on over to pauseontheplay.com forward slash community, learn more about the community, and you can join today. And as always, for listening to our conversations, for taking them back to your office, to your home, to your friend circles, to your families, and continuing to help others to drop their veils and being a part of crossing lines, recreating boundaries, and helping to support and not separate. For all of that, we appreciate you. So together, let's continue getting more people dropping the veil, challenging their thoughts, feelings, and actions. Come on, y'all. Let's reconsider this normal. We got this. So until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person, or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take, and then sharing this information across your team explicitly this is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?